0: Good morning. <laughs> my fault, my fault. Um, I wanna w- welcome those that are joining us online and say good morning to you as well and just just say what an honor it is for me to be invited to join you. Uh, not only because it provides me the opportunity to worship with you, which I was really looking forward to all week, but also it just provides me a place to say how much I have enjoyed uh, Connecting with Brian, building a relationship with Brian, having a chance to hang out with the elders yesterday, um, going out with Brian and Amy last night—you know—it's just been a—it's been a wonderful weekend, and uh, and now I get to cap it off by being with you this morning. So I'm I'm just I'm grateful for these friendships that we share. That ministry isn't simply about function or profession, but it's you know it, it's about these relationships that we share, and it's about the partnership between your church and. Great Commission Collective. So just to, to remind you or give you an overview, Great Commission Collective and with along with your church and other churches is working into about 21 countries. We're right now supporting six church planters. We're training three we've got three into church planting trainer training sessions we're assessing another three to bring them in for training. We, we just had the an online church planting conference where they were like, I mean, this just blew me away. There were like 16 countries involved and and more people than I ever expected. And I'm very grateful to God, but I want you to know that this isn't simply about mission for us. In other words, we're not defining success by rapid expansion, that we really wanna give ourselves together to leadership, sustainability, and so we dedicate time to train leaders and, and care for leaders. And, uh, and with the hope that we can make a difference and we can see pastors and elders remain in ministry over a long period of time. So we're not, you know, we're not a, we're not a big group and we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful and I'm just grateful to God that we get to do that in partnership with you. So thanks for receiving me so so warmly this morning. Now, I've been invited to preach to you from Philippians chapter 4, so you can go ahead and open up your Bibles. There's two verses in particular that we're going to target on, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. This morning's message is titled, When the Church Disappoints, When the Church Disappoints. And let's drop into the passage and read it together, and then let me pray for us. Chapter 4, verse 8 of Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence if there is anything worthy of praise think about these things what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the god of peace will be with you again when the church disappoints. Let's pray. Lord, we want to turn our collective gratitude to you now and thank you that you give us your holy word so that moments like this isn't simply an exchange of information, but Lord, it's it's an occasion of transformation because we're encountering your word. And we pray that you would do your work now as your word goes forth, and that you would give each of us, grant each of us, something specific to carry away from our time together in Philippians chapter 4. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin this morning with a question. Where does your mind go when Christians disappoint you? Where does your mind go when you discover the church isn't all that you hoped it would be or all that you expected it to be? You know, it's hard to come to terms with that sometimes. It's hard to come to terms with the church's imperfections. A guy named Chuck Colson, who was a former top aide to President Nixon, he was actually the founder of Prison Fellowship, once described the church saying, quote, The stench inside would be unbearable if it wasn't for the storm outside. The stench inside would be unbearable if it wasn't for the storm, the hurricane, the tornado outside. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, let's be honest. When you're in a pandemic and a pandemic, you know, infects the church, some of the fruit can be pretty... Ripe. It can smell, and one of the reasons why I'm excited about dropping into this epistle is that this epistle gives us a realistic sense of the splendor and the odor of the local church. Because even as we we approach the Philippian church, we begin to remember that when this church is measured against other New Testament churches, this church is actually a pretty strong church And yet, when we begin to wade into it, in chapter one, we discovered Paul opens it by talking about their envy and their problem with envy. I mean, some folks want Paul's power and his prestige, and so they're preaching the gospel out of spite. In chapter two, he goes on to talk about how there are rivalries and selfish ambition and disunity in that local church. In chapter three, he talks about how they're grumbling and complaining, and he begins to address them with that. And if that's not enough, in chapter 4, he identifies two specific women, Yodia and Syntyche, who are having this conflict that is so sharp, that is so profound, that is so unrelenting, that Paul has to write to them from prison to help them resolve it. I mean, just think about that. How bad do things need to be when a prisoner from another country has to step in and say, ladies, ladies, I can smell your conflict all the way over here. Even the best churches have big weaknesses. And so the question I want to talk to you about is, well, where do we go when we see those weaknesses? How do we think about it, God? and each other when we begin to encounter them. But you know, even as I'm saying this, I think we all know instinctively that this isn't just about the church. This is about life. This is about life in a broken world. This is about living each day with a sense that we live displaced, disenfranchised. We're not where we're supposed to be. We're not not quite home yet. We live with this this existential sense that that we're not living the life we're supposed to be living. This is is not our home. And in this place that is not our home, we we encounter people with all of their challenges and problems, and we're one of them with all of our baggage. And so it's the way that difficult people can beat down our resolve to love them. Or it's, it's the sheer work at times that's required to have a decent marriage. Or it's the moment you think about your kids and you say, I never in a thousand years dreamed that parenting could be this hard. and could be this painful or confusing or unpredictable. It's how we look in the mirror sometimes and say, you know, I'm, I'm growing older and it's scaring me to death. We have conflict in this day, conflict within the church that's unusual. At least in in my life, I've been a believer about 35 years. I don't ever remember it being like this at any point. I've been a Christian, I should say, for 35 years. I don't ever remember any point in the church where, where there's so much conflict And we've conflict over over masks and vaccines and, and, and politics. And my question is, how do we find peace when we are so wearied by war, when we are so wearied by conflict? And once we find peace, how do we keep peace? And one of the reasons why I'm excited about this particular chapter is because in this chapter, Paul instructs us on how to find and keep peace within ourselves, and within the church. And one way I wanna kinda get at what he's saying here is I I wanna frame the content of these two passages into some questions that Paul is answering in what he says. So let's think of these as Paul's peacekeeping questions. Paul's peacekeeping questions, and I've got three of them for you that I wanna look at together. Question number one, of Paul's peacekeeping questions is what do you see what do you see now again back to the passage finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think of these things so here here Paul in this passage immediately sits us down it's like he throws up an eye chart and he poses the question okay now what do you see You see better now? I don't know. What about this? You see? He's throwing out these situations. There's this assumption that's embedded within Paul's thinking that when a Christian looks out, they should be seeing certain kinds of things, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are excellent. And the question it raises for you and me is, do we see that? See, the big mystery for Paul is not, does the world really have pockets of glory in it? No, for Paul, this is a given. The big question for Paul, the big mystery for Paul is, why can't we see it? Why can't we see it? Because whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, it's out there. It's lovely, it's commendable. And yet, it's hard for us to see. So again, the question, what do we see? one of the most prominent reasons for believers particularly in a covid world why it's difficult to see is this ever increasing creep of cynicism see what happens with a, a, a cynic or when 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 cynicism is being cultivated within the soul is that the cynic sees beneath whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure in other words it What's honorable and just and pure there's got to be some game there there's got to be something else there's got to be some agenda there's got to be something laughable there's got to be some hypocrisy or some scam that's beneath that so in cynicism this is where we go all like saturday night live on the on life or on the church or on its flaws you know what i mean by, by saturday night live where everything's a joke and we're, we're all kind of on the inside and and the institution is on the outside or the person or the situation, everything's a punchline where we can subtly laugh because we shouldn't really take it seriously. Cynicism is where, where our unbelief and resentment masquerades as discernment. Unbelief and resentment masquerades as discernment as if we're really seeing things beneath that which is good. And it's not really good. It's really ugly. It's really something that should be, should be rejected or repulsed. Do you know anyone caught in that trap? Maybe, maybe you're feeling caught in that trap this morning. You know, we, we, we assume we have this moral high ground And we find ourselves more and more just rolling our eyes at at leadership or rolling our eyes at what other people are doing or rolling our eyes at attempts that they're making to grow in godliness. I I think it's really ironic that this passage uses the word whatever six times because I think few words capture the culture of cynicism more than this word whatever, whatever, whatever. Whatever, you know, I, 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 I mean, I've used this word. I know we've all used this word. I've yelled this word at my kids, whatever. I've muttered it to Kim, my wife. I've whispered it to myself when I'm being criticized by other people. Whatever's like the, the oral wave of dismissal. You know, whatever's like the, the, uh, the, the, verbal, the verbal middle finger. That's what it is. It's just, you know, here, here, whatever, whatever is the flushing sound of your expectations down my mental toilet that's what it is it's like okay whatever i'm not going to let you put any expectations on me i'm not going to let you infringe i'm not going to let you let 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 your optimism creep in whatever but here's what happens in this passage in this passage god kind of flips the script on whatever. And he calls us to look out and see God's activity and God's imprint on the world, to see it in beauty. See, Scripture assumes from this passage that there is splendor and beauty at work in the world. You know, the sparkle of a sunset over, over Lake Michigan or over, over some body of water as it, as it hits, hits the horizon and, and it lights up or the drizzle of a rain, or the dazzle of a full moon, or the ripple of a creek, or, or whatever it is that, that the book of Romans says that creation reflects the glory of God. The question we have to ask is, do we see these reflections? Are we able to see them as we walk through life? Or is, is there a cynicism that's beginning to, to blind us and to dull us to the reality? So there's there's beauty out there. It also includes God's Word, living and active and poignant and pointed and precious, the words of life. You know, if we're looking for whatever is honorable and pure and lovely, I mean, we can start, start with the Bible. Start each day with the Bible. Pray the prayer of Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. When was the last time you encountered wondrous things as you read scripture? That's what God wants for us. But again, we have to ask the question, what do we see as we go to God's word? I mean, because in a fallen world there are there are powerful forces that are seeking to stir our appetite for the wrong things. And it's not like everything is evil. Sometimes I mean the greater threat today is just that it's irrelevant that it's trivial. I mean I'm watching I'm watching the social dilemma on Netflix on how how much social media is transforming our behavior. I'm watching it and I'm grabbing my phone checking my social media while I'm watching it. And it's all unconscious, and I realize this thing is in my hand. I'm looking at it, and I don't even realize it because it's totally unconscious. But I'm feeding myself, and I have to take responsibility for what I'm feeding myself. This scripture calls us to be familiar with what we're feeding ourselves with, to be familiar with and feed ourselves on whatever is honorable, whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is just. Actually, here's the beauty of of studying biblical theology and just seeing the thread throughout all of scriptures. We, We realize that whatever is good and excellent and worthy of praise is ultimately embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Rose of Sharon. He's the captain of our soul. He's the Lamb of God, the Alpha and Omega. He's the advocate on our behalf. He is the Son of God who loved us in such an exceptional way that He offered Himself as a substitute for our sins. So Christ becomes the magnificent embodiment of that which is perfect and true, because he's impeccably honorable and he's indescribably lovely. And the question that we have to wrestle with this morning is do we see him? Do we look out and see that which is true and lovely and honorable and pure and just and commendable? Do we see him? Because if we truly want to find and keep peace, we're gonna be, need to be able to see and then also to gaze repeatedly at the beauty. So the question, first question is, what, what do we see? Question number two, how do you think? How do you think? So this exercise of sight is not like just walking through a gallery where you take a glance at beauty and just move on. Because in the final words of verse eight, Paul urges us to take another step beyond what we see. And he says it this way, think about these things. I love this passage because it's just so, it's so practical. I mean, it's it's a basic pathway forward. Think about these things. Now let's face it, you know, To be alive is to have a constant conversation with yourself. We have these thoughts that are always scrolling through our mind. And a lot of times, it's completely unconscious. We're not even tracking the files that are being opened up and the things that we're pouring over. And so this passage asks us, what fills these thoughts? Which whatever is directing our mind? Because Paul's basically getting at here one of what I think is one one of the secrets of peacekeeping for the soul. One of the secrets of peacekeeping could be summed up in three words. It goes like this, meditation determines direction. That's it, meditation determines direction. It's why this verse ends with think about these things. In other words, Paul's saying, don't just see them, savor them, don't just peer at them, ponder them. Because we all these deep ruts in our brain the these these cynical paths that cause us to just start pondering all the wrong things where we just boot up the same disk or, or file or whatever and just open up the same thing and end up walking down the same road and if we don't challenge ourselves if we're left alone in that and unchallenged by the truth of scripture you know what it can lead to very dark places. I remember dark places. I mean, one of the reasons this passage is so so meaningful to me is because it, it provided a pathway out of a profoundly dark period in my life. Shortly after I became a Christian, I, I hit a season where I just, I just spiraled down into depression. And I know that's not how the, you know, how the Christian story is supposed to work, but I mean, our, our, our souls are, are embodied in a frame that is decaying, in a frame that is rooted in a world that is decaying. And I, I, I was at a place where I never in my life expected to be. In fact, I can take you to the bedroom where I called in sick because I just had to stay in bed. Have you ever felt so defeated where you could not rally the motivation, the clarity, or the courage to get out of bed? You couldn't think any further than just remaining in bed. I, f- I felt like there was this giant mental tick that was attached to my brain, sucking all the good thoughts out and infecting me with all these negative thoughts. And and even as I share this, I know that there's some people here that can relate with that exact experience, or you know somebody who can relate to that. Their mind lives under assault, and so in desperation, I, I just called a, a leader that I knew and, and I met with him and he began to inquire about my thought life of all things. And, and he kind of uncovered this, this compulsion that I had to kind of fixate on bad thoughts. And, and in reality, I began to realize that I was, using, I was using a corrupted version of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. This was my version of Philippians chapter 4. The corrupted version was, whatever is false, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is ugly, whatever is disreputable, if there is anything miserable, if there is anything worthy of complaint, think about these things. That's where my mind was. And this dear brother began to talk to me about how Scripture, scripture renews our mind. And he pointed me to these passages, like, you know, like Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. Meditation determines direction. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, take captive every thought. Make it obedient to Christ. Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on things below. And, And I think the crown jewel, the magnum opus for meditation is the very same passage that we have today. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, put your mind there. Think about these things. You know, this is not just about like putting on rose-colored glasses or, or over-spiritualized gospel glasses so we can live in denial of the reality that's really bad in our life. I just don't think we realize how often our minds can be polluted with uncharitable, godless, critical thinking and, and you know what I'm talking about. You know, we have an experience with somebody where it doesn't go well, or we misunderstand, or maybe we're judging them, or, or they're judging us. And, and we seek to punish them, not by talking to them, but by going back into our mind and rehearsing the pain of the event. Except what we do is we recast ourselves as the witty genius who's excellent at wise repartee and puts them on the witness stand and dissects them because we know exactly what to say in the moment and then each time we repeat it we get better at it but we don't realize that it's stealing a piece of our soul each and every time we go back there. For some of us, it means we need to draw a line. No, I'm not going to spend another day doing this. I'm not going to spend another evening there. I'm not going to wake up in the middle of the night and spend the next hour prosecuting this person because I just feel polluted by that experience. It doesn't honor God. I believe that the Spirit of God gives me the power to make a swap, to swap out those thoughts for that which is honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. Listen, do you seek peace this morning? Do you feel like you lack peace this morning? Are you battling right now for hope, or are you fighting against bitterness and resentment? Well, if you can relate to that, here's a question you must answer. How do you think? What's feeding your mind? Because meditation determines direction last question. Where will you practice? Where will you practice? Finally, Paul says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So again, it's not just like going to an art gallery where we're seeing beauty or we're looking through an art book and thinking about it, but this is more like, like a school where you learn and do, where you apply and you practice. And here, Paul is the master. Paul is the apostle, which, by the way, is the reason why Paul's able to say, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Now, your senior pastor, Brian, does not sit across from people and say, listen, what you've learned and seen and heard and received from me, practice these things. Because Brian's example may be impressive, but it's not authoritative. Paul's Paul's example was authoritative. And when leaders miss that distinction, by the way, it sends the church down a dark path and sends the leader down a dark path towards arrogance and ultimately can lead to abuse. But, But the big idea here is actually a simple idea, which is that the last point that he makes was, the last point that we made was think about these things. Then Paul goes to this comment, practice. Practice these things. Think about these things was the last point practice these things is this point. Now, practice is necessary for a couple of different reasons. First, we practice because it doesn't come easy. We practice because it takes time. Believe me, if if you decide that you are going to begin to move your mind off, off of corrupted ideas, off of dark things, and, and begin to move your mind towards God, all of hell gets unleashed upon you. All of hell gets unleashed upon the, the Christian who begins to fight for their meditation, fight for where their mind is going to be. The enemy and the flesh meet us with these damning thoughts that are formed into fiery darts that go right into our soul. And so we must be prepared to practice and practice beyond on that. I remember talking to a guy who made this passing reference to to this exercise he did called his attitude adjuster. His attitude adjuster. I said, what attitude adjuster? What's that? He said, well, he said, you know, sometimes the dark thoughts that I have can just get so overwhelming that I need to actually sit down and write out all of the areas where I see God at work in my life, all of the areas where I see God at work in my wife and in my children, and and some of the areas that I could remember where God has been faithful and at work in the past. And he said, it's an act of subversion. So I'm subverting the work of the enemy and the work of the flesh. It helps me to see things from God's perspective which is all just another way to say it's a way for me to practice. So we practice because it it doesn't come easy. We've got to break through on these things. But there's a second reason as well. And that is that that practice, practice is a primary way that we can discern growth in our life, that we can discern maturity. And this is why I say this. You know, Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So it's like Jesus is saying, if you know these things, well, that's good. But blessed are you if you do them. It's kind of like what what James says uh, books later. He says, be doers of the word, not merely hearers. Because if you're doers of the word and not merely hearers, you won't deceive yourself. Be doers of the word, not merely hearers, lest you deceive yourself. In other words, there's something about the nature of like just storing up information and separating it from application that creates deception. And we become deceived because we begin to think that we are what we know, rather than we are what we do. That was the Pharisees' problem, by the way. They had all knowledge, little application. All knowledge, no practice when it came to the things of Jesus and the gospel things. So it's it, it's not just about thinking deeply about things. It's not just about knowing. You know, if I came up to you today and I said, hey, guess what? You don't know this about me, but... I'm actually a really popular guy with, with many, many friends. I'm like a friend magnet. I'm like a friend guru. I've got them all over the place. Uh, some of them are quite popular. Some of them are well-known. I've got friends, I'm on, friends with entrepreneurs and Bible scholars and mechanics, stay-at-home moms. And there's only only one problem. I've never actually met any of them. You know, I've, I've never had coffee with any of them. I've never, I've never looked one of them in the eye. I've never placed my hand on one of their shoulders and said, hey, can I pray for you? Because they're all like my Facebook friends. I know a lot of people. And this is no slam on Facebook. This is just making the distinction between knowing and doing. You know, if I come to you that way, you're gonna place your hand on me and you're gonna say, Dave, you may know a lot about Facebook friends. You may know a lot about people, but you're not doing friendship. You're not really experiencing friendship. And again, the point is not that Facebook friends are bad. The point is that there's a huge difference between knowing and doing, huge difference. The difference is deception, (laughs) huge difference. Facebook is fine as long as there's a place in our life where, to use the words of Paul, we are practicing these things. And you know why this is so important? Because peace comes through practice. And that's why Paul ends this verse, verse nine, where he says, and you do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Remember our opening question? Where does your mind go when the church disappoints you? Where does your mind go when Christians don't rise to your expectations? That's exactly what was going on with the Philippian church. And in response to that, Paul Paul is saying, follow the path toward peace. And he simplifies it by saying, look for what is good, think about what is excellent, practice what you know to be true. Look for what is good, think about what is excellent, and practice what you know to be true. And actually, I can't describe the impact of that any better than he offers in chapter four, verse seven, where he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to lift up the people here that you have been interacting with during this message. Because while words have been going out, Lord, there's been a work of your spirit, and you have been flashing faces in the minds of some you have been identifying situations in others. You've been isolating ways of thinking and corrupted ways of, of, of processing and pondering. And Lord, I wanna pray that, that you would grant us all first the gift of repentance, that we would take responsibility for the way that we're thinking. But Lord, even beyond that, we need power. We need power to be able to think new ways. And we believe that you've given us your spirit, that you might pour out your power so that we can make the very swaps that we need to make to be able to think about the things that are good and commendable and just and true and and beautiful. Lord, we pray that you would help us take ground today because we've all been around long enough to know that as soon as we leave this building, there's gonna be an onslaught. onslaught. There's gonna be an assault in our mind I pray you would meet us in that moment. Actually, help us with this passage. Help us to study this passage, memorize this passage, and use this passage to war for peace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.